Hey there, Stevie Taylor here. Welcome to episode 47 of the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Kerry Buchanan. Kerry is a drummer, piano player, songwriter, composer, and producer from Christchurch, New Zealand. Known for his impeccable time and groove, a real musician's drummer, Kerry was highly in demand session and live player in New Zealand and Australia through the late 80s, the 90s, and into the 2000s. Having worked with the Roger Fox Big Band, Midge Marsden, Margaret Ehrlich, Marsha Hines, Tina Arena, Casey Chambers, and countless more. Kerry has also written and recorded two solo albums, as well as an album with his other project, Kerosene. Back in 2014, Kerry featured on an episode of the Inside Music Cast podcast. I highly recommend you go back and listen to this. Um, I've put a link in the show notes, so you can uh, go check that out. I'd been really looking forward to meeting Kerry for a long time as I'd heard so much about this guy. I thoroughly enjoyed this chat and I'm really sure you're going to enjoy listening to it. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please give it up for Kerry Buchanan. Cheers. Say it's not so And all the games you play So I think we're rolling. Kerry Buchanan, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Well, it's uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's uh, it's an honour. Thank you. No worries. Um, you look really cold. Oh, just everybody, we're we're skyping. I'm in um, I'm in Sydney, and Kerry's in Christchurch. You're in Christchurch at the moment, aren't you? I am. In, I am indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and how's how's the weather? <laughs> yeah. Can we? Am I allowed to cuss on your show? Sure. Totally. Like to, yeah, it's fucking cold. It's really, it's really fucking cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and like we were talking the other day, and and yeah, I I, I don't miss the New Zealand cold at all. I, I remember, you know, riding my bike to school and in, in in shorts, and and it was that cold. Riding your bike, you had to turn your head to the side because you couldn't breathe. <laughs> couldn't breathe. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I don't yeah, miss. It was funny. I was walking. I was just the other day. In fact, I was walking around where. I used to ride to school and uh, just from where I used to live. And I was right on the corner of the street there. And I remember uh, we weren't allowed to wear long pants until we were in the fifth form. We were, I guess, when we were 16 or 15, 16. So we had to wear shorts. <clears throat> and uh, it was minus three, I think it was, or minus two, minus three. It was sleeting. Yeah. And I remember we had to ride to school on 
you know, and my, my high school was, you know, a good sort of three or four kilometres away on a bike. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, it's yeah. so cold, you know. I don't so, think, yeah, it, it came straight back to me. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think we ever, we ever wore long pants at school. I don't think we were ever allowed, but, I mean, it never quite got that cold in Masterton, you know. Well, I mean, it did, but it, it didn't snow. Oh, uh, you're North Island. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. it's sort yeah. of a, it's a different kind of cold, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man, what have you been up to music-wise lately? Um, Before we sort of, I've sort of throw back a bit. Well, I, I sort of, yeah, yeah, that's a good question to start with. Um, I sort of took a, I've taken a bit of a break, uh, when I, le- I left Australia in 2016 and I came back here to sort of, I don't know, just sort of try and do something else and, uh, and you know, that was okay for a little while. And so, But I'm starting to sort of uh, hanker to sort of get back in, I think. At the moment, I'm, I'm spending most of my time, I've, we've just moved, mm-hmm. so I'm, we're still unpacking in boxes and things like that, so it's still uh, sort of transition stage. But I've been writing a book. Mm. and uh, What's and the book about? Writing some music. Hey? What's the book about? What was that? What's the book about? Well, I, I certainly don't want to write a book about me because it's not in my DNA to sit around and talk about myself, although <laughs> we're having an interview about <laughs> it's what a I'm doing, I guess, but yeah. that, that's, that's a bit of a contradiction. But I think I'd sort of like, I'd like it to be about a topic to do with music, and I'm using my my own experiences as somewhat of a, a subject, I guess, or a, a storyline. Yep. So I think it's going to be a children's book. Um, I, I go through stages. Take, I've been working on it for about a year. I, I did a lot for about six months, and then I, we sort of started to get ready to move, and I started again just this week writing a lot of, you know, just going through old diaries. Uh, and it's, it's some ways it's actually quite good to be back here because this is where it all began. So I'm just collecting and gathering information, and I'm going to use uh, the, the storyline to, to, in, in a children's sort of setting. So, um, And it, it'll be to do with, you know, being a musician, I guess, or, that's cool. Or learning the ropes of being a musician, and and from then when I was doing it, which was in the in the eighties or the late seventies, right through until if you would be to do it now, because it's a totally different world now. So yeah. that's sort of what I'm spending a lot of time. I'm still writing some music that'll go along with it, hopefully. Mm. Um, and I've, so, but that's sort of it about it at the moment. I'm doing a little bit of playing, not much, mm. but just a little bit every now and again. Just, just sort keeping of, your hand in, yeah. Yeah, I just have a you know have a have a have a play, I guess you know. But I, <clears throat> I don't really feel the urge to sort of, at the moment anyway, to go out and do a whole bunch of, you know, gigs unless I could, you know, I'll probably put something together of my own here and maybe do that. But just to go out to be a working drummer again doesn't really sort of, doesn't really appeal to me that much yeah, at the moment. But, yeah, fair enough. Because um, yeah. yeah, for people that that don't know Kerry Buchanan, um, you know, through the, sort of starting in the in the early to mid eighties, right through the nineties, the two thousands. You're very prolific. Um, you seem to be everywhere. You were on all the good tours. You were doing all the sessions. Um, so, and pe- well, I was doing some of them. I wasn't. You're not all of them. You know. You know. You know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Um, and listeners, if you, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes too. If you go and look up the Inside Music Cast podcast, um, episode 136. Which was recorded in February <laughs> okay, two thousand and fourteen. I looked that up. Got to get my facts right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kerry, yeah. Kerry did quite a uh, um, extensive interview with the guys over there. So we're not going to sort of repeat that stuff. It'd be a good idea if you guys went back and and, and listened to that. Um, 
yeah, we're going to talk about some other stuff today, but yeah, and you'll get a bit of a gist of just how how sort of busy Kerry was. And and this was the time you just you'd fairly recently brought out your your last album. Is that right? That was around the time you did That's that. That's right. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. the uh, the guys. I'd spoken to the guys, uh, Rick Rick Such and Eddie Cabello, and uh, I'd spoken to them a bit on on Facebook, and uh, and they just said, look, you know, we've we've never had anyone from the Southern Hemisphere. Would you be the first, and I said, well, it would be really good if we could correspond it, or you know, correlate it with a record rather than just sort of yep. be talking about a bunch of nothing. So yeah, that's how we sort of we got around to doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So yeah, like I said, the 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 um, links in the show notes. Go back and listen to that. So um, so let's sort of we'll throw back a little bit. Like I said, we're not going to try and repeat too much of what you, you spoke about in that particular podcast. But um, piano was your first instrument, wasn't it? And and you know yeah. you, you're yeah. you're from a very musical family, especially your father. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, your father Stu um, Buchanan, who was yeah. you know, saxophone, trumpet, and piano, and and I'm not sure what else he played, but yeah, also also fairly fairly prolific in New Zealand. Yeah. And and, ed- yeah. and an educator yeah. too, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. And and an educator Sorry? too, wasn't he? Your father. He yeah yeah, yeah. he was. Um, uh, and I and I if, if I'm going to talk about my father, I should talk about my mother as well. But, sure, please. Um, dad, dad was a uh, he was actually a freezing worker, and then he um, he sort of took to music quite late in life. It was sort of like when he was 32, 33, not late in life, but later in life, I should say. And uh, he got his letters, and that's what got him into itinerant music teaching, and that's how he made his living. He was a um, the, the education department changed, but he was an itinerant music teacher. So he he went around all the schools in Christchurch and mm. and taught. Uh, clarinet, flute, and saxophones, and then through that he he got uh, t- to working within like um, within the schools, uh, uh, for- forming big bands and um, uh, uh, jazz groups and things like that. So he was um, he was a real sort of a, a go getter. He he he, he was re- and he was great. He was really really good at it, you know. And uh, and and my mother was um, well, she still my dad passed away, but my mum's still alive. And she um, she was a dancer and a nurse, and they met oh, some some years ago at, at some sort of function. I think where dad was playing. So, and um, and she's she's very artistic as well and very um, creative. She she does lots of uh, things like weaving and and and, and weaves rugs and things. And she's very you know really creative and amazing woman. Mm. Yeah. So piano was your first instrument, and then what was the what was the first draw to drums? Because I, yeah, I, I mean. Being a drummer myself, so we're probably going to talk a little bit about drums. But um, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was what was that first sort of draw to drums? I think it was probably my brother. Uh, well, because he's a drummer was, too, uh, isn't he? Your brother. Lynn was, was, yeah, Lynn was the, Lynn was always a much better drummer than me. He he um, he really took to it uh, with a lot more uh, uh, dedication and discipline than, than I did. I, I was sort of a bit. I you know I play a bit and then go oh well I'm bored with that now and I'll go back to the piano or or do something else and um, but Lynn was really disciplined so he and when I would listen to uh, to him practice at the at the door he would really work hard at, at things so I think it's Lynn but Lynn introduced me to you know to, to I mean there were there were local guys here uh, that were really great there was a guy called Doug Peacher who was probably pound for pound one of the greatest um, TV drummers here uh, in, in Christchurch. Uh, there was a guy called Wayne Allen, and uh, lots of lots of really, really really good drummers here. But when I 
when he sort of came home with Steve Dan's Asia, and then I heard Steve Gadd, and I heard, and then he introduced me to Jeff Bacara, and then all of a sudden I got a whole, you know, uh, overseas or international sort of a um, uh, a kick. Yeah. Um, it was, and that was through him, really. So you know that you know that's the person I guess I could probably say, yeah, he's he introduced me to a lot of different drumming, you know, types of players, you know. Mm. What was your first drum set? <laughs> oh man, that's a good question. Um, I think I know what my second one was, but I think my first one was it, it was called a president, and I've never ever seen them ever since. And I really don't know whether if I could remember. I don't even know if I've got a photo of them. If I could remember what the lugs were, it mm. probably wasn't a president. It might have been a Rogers or something like that, but it had president on the front skin, right? And um, and they were they were pretty bad. But I remember going, Dad saying, "Well, we should probably get you some better drums." And I got a Ludwig set, and that was probably the you know it was a much better set of drums. And I think they were Vistalites too. Oh, right, right, wicked, mm-hmm. awesome. yeah. So they yeah. were you know it was a long time ago. You know, four hundred and fifty. They were they were good. They were good drums. Yeah, that's cool. Have you still got them? Are they still in the family somewhere? <laughs> no, I I got rid of those to buy my first pearl. Oh, did you? <laughs> I think long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think I have any of those drums left at all. I, in fact, the, the, I kept the uh, the the Ludwig snare on. It wasn't a Black Beauty. It was a cheap. Was just like a cheap Ludwig, and it was a five and a half. I think it was by fourteen. And I used that on a lot of gigs and a lot of sessions. And it was a cheap drum, but it sounded great. Mm. So um, I kept that for a long time. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. And, and I guess. I mean, by rattling off Jeff Bacaro and Gad, so Groove was obviously the draw for you. Always, and I think it was, uh, I think it was the way they approached playing songs, music. Uh, I was never really, and, and I say this with the utmost respect to any any guys who who are into that sort of the soloistic thing. I I, I do love it. I love watching uh, anything that Buddy Rich did, or uh, you know, any any sort of modern type uh, uh, soloing or or, or drum type music, I guess, but it was the song players that got me the most. You know, uh, Jeff were playing with, with Toto and mm. Steely Dan and everything they played seemed to be right for the song and that, that's what really sort of caught my ears, mm. you know, early on. Yeah, and and was there a particular song, a particular song, or were, were you sort of introduced to a, a, a uh, Steely Dan? You know, you, you know what I mean, eh? Was there a, was there a, a Toto or Steely Dan song that you heard and went, oh shit! Uh, yeah, uh, it, well, it was it was actually Toto. It was the first record that was. I mean, it was it was actually Lowdown was the, the first thing I heard Jeff play on, but I didn't know that that was Jeff Bacaro. I just I just knew it. That was a great song and a great a great drum track. But the first Toto album that that uh, my brother bought, I didn't buy it. Of course, he he bought it home. And when I heard Georgie Porgy, I, I just freaked. I just thought, yeah. well, that that's so. That's so hip for that time. It was 1978 or something, and uh, and even now when I play it, if I was to play it right now, it still sounds as hip as it was then, you know. Yeah. And so that was the first thing I thought that I got to do more of that, you know. Yeah. And um, you know, it was a, it's a, it was a, an amazing sort of um, to to think that back then we were playing 16 and everything. I mean, the recording. As you get older, of course, you realise that the recording techniques, and, and 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 then you also realise the limitations that were on because they were on tape. They weren't editing a whole bunch of things. It was a real. That was a take. Yep. You know, pr- presumably it might have been 
a few edits, but I doubt it. And yeah. so it's pretty amazing, you know. Mm. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a real kick in the ass to hear that for sure. Yeah, and what about the first Gad track? Um, I think I'd heard Steve Gad on, on a lot of things prior. Uh, my brother was into Chick Korea, so I think I, I think he had the Mad Hatter and 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 a few things like that. But I think. The first thing that I really heard of Steve Gadd that, that appealed to me was a, an Al Jarreau record called Jarreau that came out in about 1982. That had Jeff Lacar on it too. And um, I, when I heard that, I, I realised that Jeff, uh, that sorry that Steve Gadd could really cross over. He could play anything. Mm. Um, so he could play on a pop record, and he could play on on a jazz record, and he could play on a big band record. He could play on all this, and then Steely Dan Asia, it might have even been Asia that I first heard, it might have, no, I can't really remember, yeah. but I realised that he was really uh, um, uh, diversified, he could just do a whole bunch of things, mm. amazing, amazing. Mm. And who were your, who were your first um, non-drummer musical influences, apart from, say, your father? I think that I got, early on, I really got into songwriters. I mean, I'm a I'm a credit Nazi. I get or a credit geek is probably a better term. I like I like to read who arranged the songs. I like to who to read who composed, who played on it, who produced it, and the artwork and 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 all those things. But the songwriters were the ones that really sort of got me. And when I started to see songwriters appear on lots and lots of songs on different albums, that's those. But Donald Fagan and Walter Becker probably were the apart from sorry Lennon and McCartney, but Donald Fagan and Walter Becker were the ones I think that really got me initially because they were they were uh, the songs were they weren't love songs and so you really had to think about the lyrics and they were rock type tunes infused with jazz and 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 a whole bunch of different sort of elements and, and it was you know so it was probably Donald Fagan and Walter I'd say for sure yeah and how far into your sort of listening to Steely, Steely Dan did you because you obviously were drawn to the drummers first um, and then sort of got into that music. When did you realise that, that those two guys were involved in Steely Dan? Um, that's a good question. Um, because I, the first album I heard was Asia. So, mm-hmm. And then the second album I heard was uh, Royal Scam. And then my brother bought a Greatest Hits record. So um, uh, I can't really, sorry, what was the question? Again? Which, sorry, I've just forgotten a line of questioning. So um, which... Which album are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. At what point during your sort of starting of your Steely Dan phase did you realise that, like, you know, those two guys, man, these guys are fantastic songwriters. And it, who are well, they? Well, it would have been it yeah. would have been Gaucho because that, okay. they were the two that they were both on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 if I was to sort of talk about Steely Dan, I, I think um, I actually I went through I went to Asia, Raw Scam, then Gaucho, and then I went back through the catalogue. Okay. Um, and realised that there was, you know, all this other great music as well, you know, that they weren't on because they were a band, of course. Right. Initially, yeah. Yep. yeah. And we, was this the kind of stuff you were putting on and playing along to? Yeah, yeah. I used to put, I used to put on, um, when my brother left home, I sort of uh, hijacked his bedroom and I set my drums up and I had a turntable and I used to put Asia on and I'd play along to Black Cow, and then I'd get to the fade, and then it, just before it faded out, I'd get up and lift the needle off <laughs> and put it onto Deacon Blues, so I didn't yeah. have to play Asia because I couldn't play it. And then I'd flip, and then I then I flip the record over, and I did that for a long time. So I said, and this is the reason why 
I've never been able to play Asia probably because <laughs> I just I kept I kept getting to it thinking no I can't I can't do that yeah well you could probably <laughs> get some way through it and then and then when Gad starts to let rip at the end you oh, no that's that's yeah random. I just yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he walks in I walk out yeah, yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um now were you sort of starting to listen to bass players as well sort of lock into bass playing and stuff like that or was it all sort of drums and it was never actually, to be honest with you, Steve. It was never really drums. It was actually, uh, it was actually the whole big picture. Uh, I mean, the, the the drums was the was the instrument that I played. But uh, I was into all guys, all sorts of guys, like you know, all the guitar players and all the bass players and and keyboard players and and horn players, uh, singers, writers, everything. So, um, but if I was to talk bass players uh, internationally, I'm talking about, um, you know, I was. There were so many records around with David Hungate on them, and uh, you start to see common sort of rhythm sections on the records. I'd go and buy a record, and I'd see David Hungate and Jeff Baccaro playing, and then I'd pick up another one, and it would be Abel Boreal and John Ferraro, or then I'd see Steve Gadd and Anthony Jackson. So there was a there were sort of like team players, and the same went with engineers and producers to be the same thing, you know. So it might be David Foster and Humberto Gatica and or um, George Duke and you know and 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 somebody else you know so it was um it was like a team thing that's what I sort of found then you know uh, but I was into I was probably if anything more than individual instruments I was into the big picture especially rhythm sections you know because um it was it was a really great time for music back then for sure yeah yeah but did you ever sort of take yourself away from the music in your in your drum practice and specifically work on technique or or playing to a click. Because what I'm getting, what I'm getting to with these this sort of line of questioning, I guess, is, I mean, you're you're fairly known for your your groove and your impeccable timekeeping. <laughs> from from what I from from what I've heard from your friends and 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 yeah, everybody that that talks about you. So, I'm just trying to work out how you kind of develop that that time, um, you know. <clears throat> I read an interview with uh, Carlos Vega. Um, in a modern drama magazine, and he said something about he got to a certain age where he felt his time or the clock, the inner clock, sort of synced up one day, and um, and I sort of felt that too. I mean, I, I definitely don't have a great time. I, I've got okay time, um, but time's elastic. So I, I you know, I, there's a whole, that's a whole topic we can sort of talk about, but maybe for another time. But how I sort of um, I read that interview and I thought, well, that's interesting to think. Maybe you know, in time, my time might uh, actually sort of improve. A few people did say to me, uh, "You need to start working with a metronome," and I did. I did start working with a metronome because um, uh, actually the first guy that said it to me was a really great jazz uh, acoustic bass player, uh, a guy here. He passed away quite some time ago, but his name was Andy Brown, and Andy was like he was one of the the big guys here. And I did a gig with him one time. It was a rehearsal band, actually. I was very young. And I, I sped up, and he he screamed at me, and I threw over my rights and I said, hey, buddy, what's the fucking hurry, you know? And I <laughs> I, I sort of freaked out because I didn't know what he meant. But then mm. he pulled me aside afterwards, and he said, you need to start working with the metronome because as soon as that, if you become friends with that guy, you'll you'll be better off. And, it, and I'm telling you now, Kerry, you're going to be frightened when you hear how bad you are with a metronome, and he was dead right. Yeah, right. So I, um, I started to work with a metronome, and I realised that I needed to really sort of hone that. And so I, 
I just sort of, I just did it, you know. And I, I was, I was frightened by it because it was, <laughs> that was right and I was wrong. Yeah, right. But you find a, you find the common ground between the two. You know, you want you, you want a good time, but you don't want it to be, you know, so metronomic that it's, that it's sort of boring. You know what I mean? So you you find it. But that was the best way for me to do it. And then once you once you start working, once I really started working in in groups, especially in the 90s, where everything was to click anyway on live things, you know, if you were touring, right. not everything, but a lot of things, you know, you had to play to clicks. And you always had to play to clicks in the studio. Um, there was only on the rare occasion that someone would say, let's cut this live. You know, most of it was, you know, you, you get a Lindrum back then or you, or some sort of a, or a device and, you, you know, you play, you play to it, you know. Mm. And, um, so, yeah. Mm. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit about your, um, your playing career. So, like reading through your bio, I'm not, I wasn't quite quite sure on the time when you moved or what what brought you from New Zealand to Australia. So can you sort of go through that, go through that phase because you were doing a lot of yeah a lot of jazz stuff and and um you, you know you were doing some theatre stuff and and then you know from your bio it says you know you moved to Australia. Was there a particular gig that came up or was somebody saying to you, Kerry, you got to get out of out of New Zealand, it was it was a bit of that actually. I I sort of worked from 1984 right through to 1987 here, and uh, I I was doing a four night a week gig here in '87, and then the the market crashed. I remember that, and things started to tighten up, and people uh, gigs started to to slow down, and uh, and I was really busy at that time. Well, a lot of us were actually really busy at that time, and um, at the end of the year, we we got our uh, our sort of notice that we weren't going to be playing four nights a week in this club anymore, and and someone said, "Oh, well, we can get a gig in in Whangarei. And I thought, "Well, you know, if I'm going to go somewhere, I don't really want to go up there. I, you know, I love Whangarei, but I just didn't want to yeah. do that." So yeah. I thought, were you, maybe sorry, I were, you, should, were you still down in Christchurch at that stage? I was still in Christchurch, yeah. So I decided. I, I my brother had just moved to Sydney, and he rang and he said, "You should get your ass over here." So I went for three weeks, and then I came back packed, and then I went back, and I and I sort of stayed there right up until I, I came. Oh, I went to Brisbane for a little while, but I was in Australia that whole time, and really there was nothing calling except maybe, you know, the the, the higher power saying maybe you need to move, you know, and and find something else and do something else somewhere else, you know, and get get amongst a different, slightly different culture and and uh, and play with some some different players, and and that's what happened really. That was about it. Mm, okay, so how did you start getting the gigs here? Well, it was it was really fortunate. I, um, one, I, I I met some guys. My brother was he was playing in a club there called the All Nations Club. Yep, yep. And he did he did some gigs with um, Tommy Emmanuel. So he was in Tommy's band for for a short time, and then um, I I moved over and I would go down to the All Nations where Lynn was playing. I would play a couple of songs, you know, every now and again, you know, just get up and have a play, and. I met a guy one night who was, a, I can't remember his name now for the life of me. He said, oh, look, you know, I'll take your number. There's, this might be some gigs around in, in a couple of weeks. The drummer might not be able to, you know, he might be going away. Would you be keen? I said, yeah, man, it's great. And on the following Wednesday, I went down to see a band play, and I, I'm pretty sure it was Barry Leaf, actually. Mm. But the drummer was a guy called John Watson, Watto. And I met Watto that night, and Watto's this large, larger-than-life Gorgeous character. I love him. He's such a great guy and such an amazing drummer. And he said to me, give us your number, mate. I'll, I'll give you a call. And that Saturday night, he rang me and he just said, 
what are you doing tonight, son? <laughs> and I said nothing. He said, well, there's a gig at the West Road Hotel, I'll be there at 7.30. And, and, and I got a gig. That was it. And and so all of a sudden, I, you know, you meet four or five guys and, and I was in that band because the drummer didn't show up. So I, I got the gig. And so I was working two or three nights a week in, in that little band. So it just, you know, it's, it's just chant stuff, yeah, by chant stuff, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Usually how it and is, that's eh? how it sort of. That's how, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah, and then, and did it sort of, did it build rapidly from there, or just sort of slowly ramp up? It didn't really build much at all. I okay. I got to um, I got to about the middle of the year, and I started to think maybe I should go home. And then my mother said, "No, you're not allowed to come home." <laughs> so, which was the best thing that she ever said to me. So I, I packed my car, and I I, I knew a keyboard player from the Philippines, but he was, he lived in New Zealand. He was living in Brisbane. So I, I went to Brisbane for about, well, what I was hoping for six, eight months, a month at the most, maybe a year. And I ended up sort of staying there for four years. And, um, but I just sort of, you know, you just followed, I followed my nose. It was like, well, maybe I should get up there. And I sort of, I did some work up there and I, and I played in a really, a really good band for a long time and, uh, learnt a lot. And I began to sing then. I began to do background vocals. So it was good. It was, you know, it was sort of like, um, um, you know, uh, cutting my teeth, you know, on, on up there. It was the same as I was doing it here. It was just in a different sp- uh, different space, you know. Mm. So it was good. It was a good time. I, I, I enjoyed it, you know. Mm. And when did the recording sessions start to happen? I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot here before I left. And, uh, and I was... There was a lot. Of, there were lots. Of, there was lots of it back then. It was like um, yep. Radio New Zealand had a had a sort of a, a thing here, so it was really uh, quite sort of extensive. So there's a lot of us doing it. Um, do I remember my first session in in, in Australia? Yeah, in Sydney. Um, I think it was in. Uh, it would have been in Brisbane, and uh, I used to work for a, a, a sorry a saxophone player called. Craig Hanacek, and he had a little studio in um, in Paddington there, and I think I just did some demos for him, and then I ended up playing on his album, uh, and I think that was the first time there, you know. But and that was a good session too. It was some it was some nice players, and it, it was good, you know. It was was a and it was good music too. It wasn't just sort of playing some sort of you know yawning sort of type music. It was a, it was a good good day's work, you know. It was it was nice. Right. So and so that was your sort of your foot in the door into the. Well, yeah, I'll say Australian recording scene. So was it a case of, I mean, because you hear a lot of stories, especially about about the US, about, and you were, we were kind of talking about it before with producers and, and stuff, getting their little little groups of people and having them work on everything. Was that happening up there in Brisbane? Is that, once you got that first session? I guess, yeah, I think so. There was, you know, I mean, it's like anything, I, I guess, and I, I fall into that uh, category too. Sometimes, you know, if I'm recording something, I think, well, I'll get these guys because I, I know them and I know I can hand the charts to them and they're going to do a great job. And, you know, so it was the same thing up there. They, you know, they find a little core group of guys that they get along with and, and they can uh, relate to really easily and ask something of and they're not going to get all, all sort of pinged off. And, you know what I mean? It's, you mm-hmm. know, you find your little, you know. Yeah, and I found a little niche there. I wasn't really doing a lot up there. There was The jingle thing was very sewn up. It was a totally different sort of uh, environment than than when I moved back down to to Sydney, it was it was very close sort of shop up there, and you know it was for good reason. It was just the four or five guys that did it, and um and it was the one drummer that that did it, and um and that was that was sort of the way it was, you know, and, and you know that's all right. But once I moved to Sydney, 
uh, back down there, it sort of changed it, you know. So it was a completely different scene, yeah? Totally different. It was um, it was very uh, um, very sort of insular. And, and it, um, on the odd occasion that I did do one, um, actually, the, it was just before I left there. I, the, the drummer was a guy called Don Lebler, and Don Lebler's a great drummer. His father, Harry Lebler, was a really great teacher. And I think Harry taught Mitch Farmer and uh, any any of those other guys that came down from Bruce, and he was a really good teacher. And Don was a great drummer. And but it, he, I think the the Jingle guys up there, they, I think they all went to school together or something like that. So, um, and there was one time when uh, the guy Gary, I think was his name, he called me up and said, "Oh, do you want to come in and play this session?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine." You know, and I sort of front up, and Don walks in. You know, it was a bit uncomfortable, and <laughs> you know, it was just silly stuff. You know, but it was you know, it was just a gig. You know. Yeah, it's fine. You know. Yeah. And what was the point that made you move from Brisbane back down to Sydney? I, I think I needed to spread my wings uh, more, and I needed to get back to um, uh, I needed to get back to a bigger city, and uh, and sort of, you know, I felt like I was sort of ready. Then, I, and I think I was ready when I arrived in Sydney. I was nineteen, so I was pretty young. Um, and, but by the time I sort of came back, you know, I was twenty three, twenty four, and I, I, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm sort of ready now. I can sort of dive into this and. Uh, and I'd met some people in Brisbane when I was playing in this. I was playing in this little club called the Underground. It's like, well, everyone used to come in when they'd come through town touring. They'd all come down to the Underground and see the band. It was a great band. It was a really good, nice gig. And uh, you know, a few of the guys would say, "What the fuck are you doing up here, man? You should, <laughs> you should move back down there." And so I just, you know, it was the time was right. At the time, I was just a partner, and and she'd finished a a degree in uh, graphic design. So we thought, well, let's, let's move down to, you know, Sydney and she got a job and, you know, it was, it was good timing. Mm. You know? mm. And what was your first gig when you got back? Um, well, I had two gigs. I was really, this was very lucky, very fortunate. Um, I played, I worked with a guy called Eric Johns, Eric Rasmussen is his real name. And, mm. uh, Eric was in a group called Heatwave. He's a guitar player, isn't he? And yeah, yeah. And I, in, in that band that I was just saying, uh, before I left New Zealand, um, I was playing at a club called Xanadu, it was called. And we played four nights a week. And Eric was in that band. And, and he did, um, he was, um, he, he ran a little studio in town here too. And he was, a, he was sort of one of the guys, you know, and, one, you know, one of the, that the, you'd want to play with. And, uh, I worked with him for that whole time. And so, when I moved to Sydney, he moved to Sydney, and um, uh, I stayed in touch with him. And then I called and said, hey, look, I'm, I'm moving back, back down from Brisbane. He said, well, look, I've got this four-night-a-week gig. The band's going overseas. We're going to go overseas for a few months. I'm putting another band in to replace us just for the three months. Do you want to play drums? And I said, yeah, man. So I got a gig working in a nightclub called Club Reaver, which used to be underneath the, the Sheraton on the park there. I think it's gone now. Um, so I got that gig and that was, that was a lifesaver because it was good money and it was four nights a week and I met some guys and, but the other gig I had when I first got there was, um, was, it was sort of role reversal. I, I, I knew Warren Trout from, from Brisbane days and Warren had moved back down to Sydney or moved to Sydney, I should say. And he was working in a band called What Is Hip with a guy called Justin DeLeo. And I called Warren and I said, Hey man, I'm, I'm moving down. So, you know. You know, we're not sort of hustling necessarily, but I'm, I will be around. He said, "Well, do you want a month of Friday nights at, or Saturday nights at the basement?" And I said, "Yeah." So I I did that gig. So it was really fun. I mean, it was it was chuff change. It was eighty bucks or something like that. But it didn't matter. I was you know I could meet some people and 
and Mark Williams was on the gig and I met Darren Paul and I met Noel Elmoe and I met some guys, you know, and it was, so that's how it, that's how it works. What well, worked then anyway, I'm not quite sure how it works now, but it was, you know, it was, it was really fortunate. So I was very lucky. Was this about the time you got uh, into the Marsha Hines band? No, no, I, I got, that was about, uh, that was about 96. I think I started playing with Marsha. Okay. Pretty sure, yeah. And uh, well, can I tell you how that gig came Please, about? Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah, all right? Absolutely. Um, back in nineteen ninety, I, I, I was um, I was playing in this group. It was a really cool group, like I said, and um, it was a jazz festival going on. And one of the guys, one of the drummers in town, um, said, "Hey, man, um, Gordon Ritmeister is coming down to check you out." Oh. And I was freaked. I always freaked out when I heard people say, "You know, you know, someone's going to come and check you out." I go, "Oh no, so, you know." Well, I should have done this today, and I, why have I got that? And, you know, did you know who Gordo was at that stage? Yeah, I knew who he was, but I, I'd, I'd never, I'd never heard him play, and I'd never met him. So I was, but I knew who he was, and so I was a bit sort of, um, I was nervous, you know. But he came down, and him and I hit it off. We just, you know, we have the same sense of humour. We, 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 um, we love a lot of music, and we just hit it off. We were, we were really, really close. We fell really close. I could just feel it. It was, and every time he came through. We'd um, we'd hook up and say good day, and um, when I moved to Sydney, I called him and I said, you know, hey, look, you know, I'm I'm moving to Sydney. He said it's about time. I thought he might have said, oh no, God, there's another guy coming to town. <laughs> he was the opposite. So it was a very welcoming, sort of accommodating, sort of feel, you know. And he he got me the gig with well, he actually got me the gig with Margaret Ulrich because he left Margaret to play with Marsha, and then. Margaret finished up and then he left Marsh to do something else and I got the gig through him. So it was it was very, you know, if I hadn't, if he hadn't come down that time when I was freaking out in 1990, I don't know what would, you know, maybe it might not have happened, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's weird how those little sort of things sort of, you know, um, sort of take place and then they can sort of carve your little sort of way in life, you know what I mean? It was, it was very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just on the Margaret Ulrich thing, I, I was telling you just before I was talking to some of your friends and um, now Mark Costa, he oh, yeah. he's he said ask him about his first Margaret Ulrich gig with me at the <laughs> Brisbane Travel Lodge, and he said it's funny stuff. So you got to tell that story. All right, <clears throat> I think it was I think it was my first gig. Yeah, I think we did one rehearsal, and it was a it was really um, I I thought it would have been like we rehearsed for six weeks, like a like a Frank Zappa gig where you rehearse for three months and then you go and hit the road, you know. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was like a, an afternoon at stage door for three hours and, you know, and some charts that I think Phil Scorgi had written. So that they weren't even, uh, they weren't even current to what, how they were doing things. It was a bit, you know, a bit odd. But anyway, so I, we had two gigs from, and I, and Mark will say whether this is right or wrong. What It was the Brisbane Travel Lodge and then we had to go down to Hobart, I think, something like that. Anyway, so we were playing. Um, uh, there was a band on before us, Andrew O, and then we came on to play. And and I was a bit green with the gig because I, it was big shoes to fill. Um, uh, you know, Gordon had been playing, and Hamish was the drummer in the band before that. So there was lots of really good drummers that had been through that band. Um, and so, you know, um, it was a part of the show where where Margaret would say. You know, she'd introduce a few guys to play some solos and things like that. And Mark, Mark loved 
you know, his little spotlight. He got to get up there and do his thing, you know, and, and it was great, you know. So he got up, moved forward to play his, his thing, and which was great. And it all really it went down. The, the audience loved it. And he turned around to walk back, and there was a fallback speaker in front of him. <laughs> and he tripped over the fallback speaker and fell what was sort of like into me, into my drums. And I'm looking at, you know, this guy sort of coming straight for me with a Yamaha five-string bass. I'm going, fuck. <laughs> you know, and it was, uh, and anyway, he sort of managed to sort of peel off to the left. And as he <laughs> fell, <laughs> I'm sort of laughing at this and I shouldn't because it was, it could have, he could have really hurt, hurt himself. But as he fell down onto the ground, he, he strummed his hand over the entire, all five strings. So it just went, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and it, you know, everyone was laughing in the band, I was, and I was trying not to laugh because I'm thinking that you can't laugh, Kerry, because that's not fair. <laughs> and Mark turns to me afterwards. We were still playing. I can't remember the song we were playing, but we were playing. And he looked over it to me, and you know, we were playing quiet enough. And he said to me, "I feel so embarrassed." And I, <laughs> I, I was so close to saying, "Oh no, shit." <laughs> I'd feel embarrassed too if I did that, you know. But it was, uh, and I, and I thought uh, yeah, he was. I hope he was. <laughs> he was all right afterwards, anyway. But yeah. it was a funny. It was a funny sort of thing. To, that was my first gig, you know. And just, uh, here I was trying to read Phil Scorgi's charts and make decipher <laughs> things, and then the bass player was coming straight for me with a bass, you know. So it was, <laughs> it was fun. That's funny. That's cool. anyway, yeah. 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 So how long were you with um, Margaret Ehrlich? I think it was about. I think it was about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. She she had an album that called uh, The Deepest Blue, I think it was called, and um, it had been released, I think, and then it got pulled, and then they replaced uh, Drum Machine. I think Hamish Stewart played some, some great drums on that record, and Chad Wackerman, I think, played on something. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then they decided to go back out and hit it, and um, uh, and so I think it was about a year and a half. Okay. All up by the time we sort of toured it. which album had Escaping on it? Which, which was the break? Breakthrough album. That was the first record she did. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yep. That was. Yeah, I think the, I can't remember the name of the record, but that was the one with escaping and um, uh, uh, there was a ballad on there too, a six eight ballad. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. But she was she was in a group called Peking Man here. Yep. Uh, I, I don't know whether you remember those those yep. guys. It was her brother. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I could you could I remember going to a gig here one afternoon. I was playing at it actually, and then she they were on after us, and I remember Margaret coming out and doing her sort of famous. Uh, sort of dance, you know, the way she her sort of swagger on stage, and I remember thinking to myself, she's going to be a hit. You could just see it because she could she could sing and she had a look about her. She was interesting. She was unique, mm. and um, and and we had lots of fun on the road. She's a she's a real great lady. She's a good piano player, man. I, I was really knocked out when I was we were after a, a gig and we were having a few drinks and a bit of a party, and um, there was an acoustic piano sitting in the corner, and she just went over to the piano and started playing, and I. I turned around to say, "Hey, who's the piano player?" And I didn't realize it was her. And yeah. so she can; she's a real musician, you know. She's she can really play. Right. So it was it was it was nice, you know. She, you know, and she's a nice lady too. It was good fun. And do you know what she's doing now? Is she is she still doing music in New Zealand? Haven't heard. I don't haven't know. heard about her. I for haven't. Years. No, I'm, no, yeah. I haven't seen. Uh, the last gig I did with Margaret probably would have been early two thousands, around the time of the Olympic Games. Yep. I think I filled in. I filled in for somebody, but no, I don't know what she's doing. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So on to back onto the Marsha Hines thing because I saw a few um, a few videos of you playing with her. Um, right. Yeah. So how long? I'm were sorry. 
No, no, it's cool. So uh, I'm just trying to remember who was in that band. Victor Rounds was in that band. Um, there were a few different incarnations in that group, actually. I was trying to I, – I sort of figured maybe you might ask about Marsha today, and I tried to actually go through my mind about who was in that band. And um, the first group, I think the, the, she always the, – the good thing about Marsha um, – is that she always had a strong band, yep. and um, and it was made up of people who could who could sing and play, and so you know a lot of us had to double up, and that's, that's part of that's part of the gig. Uh, when I first joined the band, uh, it was a really good group. It was um, it was a guy called Danny DeCosta on keyboards, and he sang as well. Uh, Mark was playing bass, Mark Costa, John Bettison was playing guitar and singing, and. Tony, as a party, was playing percussion. Although he he did get sort of let go, unfortunately, you know, budget things. It's a, those things are such a drag. Um, and Paul Gray, who sadly passed away a little while ago, he he was he was playing keyboards and singing as well. That was a really strong band, and uh, and and so, and that whole time that I was with Marsha, there was never a, a band that wasn't strong. So it was really fortunate. And she, I think she she made sure of that. You know, uh, if she felt there was any sort of weak link at it would have been sort of lightly let go, you know, because she wanted to have, a, you know, a group of guys behind her. It was good. To, it was a good time. It was, you know, it was always a good band. Yep. And how long were you with Marsha for? Right up until we got expired. Um, we were, t- I was in that band for about 14 years. Right. So it was a, lot, it was until, a long time. What did you say until we got expired? Yeah, we all, well, I don't know exactly <laughs> Uh, who exactly got fired? But we all, we all got fired. We, we all got sort of let go, oh. and um, none what? of us really saw. Well, I certainly didn't see it coming. And um, but um, we all got fired for our uh, the, the guys who were our debt guys. Who we, if if we couldn't do a gig, I'd call Warren. He got the gig. Right. And if um, I can't remember who was playing keyboards at the time, but um, if the keyboard player, it was might have been Paul actually. Paul couldn't do the gig. Um, Dave Pritchard would get it, and he got the gig. <laughs> And so when Victor couldn't do it, he called Alex Hewitt and he got the gig. So we sort of got sort of passed over for the what all at the all at the same time. Yeah, all at the same time. Yeah, it, it was a it came it it came as a bit of a shock to me because I I certainly didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And um, I in all in retrospect, and um, you know, for anyone that's listening, hey man, shit can happen. And of course, and um, it, uh, and you sort of you you know you've got to develop some sort of thick skin. But, but it didn't get handled very well. I didn't think it was handled very well. But right. um, you know, and I haven't seen Marsha ever since, and, and that's a shame because we we were we were good friends. I liked you know being around the, the band, and and uh, and I I always treated that gig with um, with the utmost respect because it was a good it was a good gig. You know, it was nice. Mm. So what year was that? What year were you let go? Two thousand and ten. I think we were sort of like yeah, two thousand and ten, maybe two, early two thousand and eleven. I think it was something like that. Okay. All right, so yeah. when did the Tino Arena thing come along? Was that was that during that time? So you're saying the Marsha thing was 14 years. Obviously, heaps of stuff getting done in between that. How sure? How often were you sort of doing the Marsha thing? How, how much of so, look, let's just, yeah? Let's just go back to that a little bit. So how how much of a year would have been taken up um, with, with Marsha Hines? Yeah. In that whole time, uh, I think there was a year break to do a record. Um, sometimes she'd take a break to do something else. Um, she did a couple of theater shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which but she's, generally she's doing speaking, that stuff. we worked, yeah. 
Yeah, she's doing. She's doing. She does theatre shows now. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, a thing she, now, yeah. Uh, yeah, she, you know, with the, well, Peter Ricks, her manager would say, hey, you know, you need to make some money, uh, maybe maybe do six months of of it, this show or whatever. And, um, and you know, he was he, and he was dead right. And so she would she would do those things. And, and she would take a year off to make uh, a record, to work on a record. Um, I think she only did that once or twice maybe. But um, the whole time, pretty much, um, she, we, we worked. You know, we just worked all the time. Uh, you know, and, and as things sort of drew to a close um, in 2010, of course, the uh, Bernie Madoff made a really good sort of, you know, fool of himself by causing a global financial crisis, and that really hit, and it hit a lot of us. And so the gigs started to sort of um, dwindle quite, quite considerably and very quickly. Yeah. And so we we're all sort of looking around, going, "Well, you know." Maybe we should be looking at other things, and um, and sh- and sure enough, with you know, we, we we sort of got expired, as I said before. But you know, things were starting to tighten up. So, do you think the global crisis maybe had something to do with why you guys were replaced with your debts? Because maybe the debts were I getting. I don't think. No, I know. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I okay. think it was. Um, I, I just used that because it was just ironic that it was around the time. And I, I, I remember a friend of mine, because there was, we actually did do, and it was a, it was somewhat of a, a, a topic that got brought up quite often. Marsha did do a lot of corporate work, which was great for her because, you know, she, she'd make good coin. Um, and for the band, we'd be working. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, well, the good thing about that is you make money. The, 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 the uh, offside of that or the or the bad side of it is that you, you're actually out of the spotlight because you're in corporate land. Um, and we knew that we were going to, was going to, as soon as that crisis happened, that the corporate work would sort of dry up. And of course it did. Mm. So uh, I think I, I looked in the book and I'm thinking, we used to do four or five gigs a month and all of a sudden it was one, you know, so it just, it just flipped, you know, the, the switch went off. Yeah, and right. so, but, but that, you know, that shit happens, you know, so you just sort of got to be, Try and be prepared for it, I guess, if you can. You yeah. Know? So, okay. So that's my next question. What's the mindset there? Once you saw it sort of happen, what what were you doing? Were you being proactive to try and get that yeah. book filled, or did people just start? Other people start calling, I, knowing that you weren't off doing the master stuff, or you know, you're available now. Well, to be honest with you, around it was. It's always been in my DNA to want and try. To record and and compose and make my own music, mm-hmm. um, and it was sort of like right back. Well, it was it was about ninety seven, ninety eight. I started to think about it, um, and it took me a little bit longer. That took me about ten years afterwards to finally do it. Um, so I dove right in. I was probably a little bit ambitious, but um, because at that time it was pretty scary, and everyone was sort of you know things were tightening up, and uh, lots of gigs were sort of becoming scarce, and you know and whatnot. But I just dove in and made a record. Um, so I didn't sort of. I've never been the one to sit around and wait for the phone to ring. I just I just want to keep doing things. And so I'd, I'd put a band together, or uh, I'd write some charts out, or I'd be transcribing things, and I'd be trying to learn or uh, make a record. So I made a record, and that took me, you know, all of, you know, all of about sort of ten months. So I, I got busy, and um, probably spent a little bit too much money on it. But <laughs> at the at the same time, it was probably a good thing because you know it was a bit of a tough time for everybody. So you need to put put back into your industry if you can, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so when when did the Tina Arena thing come along? Um, I I think it was around 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. 
um, I got a call one afternoon from a guy called Rufit Pletzer, and Rufit um, was at the time, I think he was sort of, well, maybe for quite a while, he was sort of the darling of the of the Sony um, sort of crew, and he, I think he was working for Ralph Carr, and Ralph was Tina's ex-husband, of course. And um, Rupert, and I'd met Rupert through Rick Price, and Rupert said, hey, man, you know, there's, there's some gigs coming up with Tina Arena. Would you would you want to be part of the band? I said, yeah, fuck, I'd love to, man. Mm. And we were, we were due to go, or she was due to go to France and play some shows at the Olympia Theatre. And so um, I, I got the gig. And I think it was Terrify had the gig. I think he was playing drums. And I think he had some conflicting dates with um, with somebody else. And, and my name came up. I mean, it was, you know, it could have gone to anybody, but it just it came to me, you know. So it was really, I was, I was blown away because I, that was, Probably one of the gigs, one of yeah, definitely one of the gigs that I really wanted to sort of play because I I loved the music and I knew that she could really she could really sing mm. and the band was good and we got to tour and and have some fun and I got to play in France you know which is you know it's a bit of a dream come true you know yeah that's awesome so how did that audition go down it wasn't an audition it was word of mouth yeah and um, there was this I think there was a Screw up with the keyboard player. I can't remember. Something went down, but he rang me back and said, Rupert, and said, Hey, look, we need a piano player. Can you recommend somebody? And I recommend Paul Gray. I said, Well, Paul would be good, man, because he knows Tina and, and he sings, and, you know, he'd be good with running laptops and things like that because he was a bit of a tech guy. And, and so, yeah, that's how it sort of, you know, came about, you know. Yeah, that's cool. You, um, you played on Mitch Marsden's Burning Rain album. Did you yeah, play did you yeah. play the did you play on the title track? No, that's no, that's um that's Steve that's Steve Garden. So do you know you know who you know who Steve Garden is? I don't know. No. Okay. Right. Um I know um, like that's that song and when I read in your bio that you'd played Mitch Marsden and then I, I remember because I remember when that song came out. And it was massive, man. It was a huge song in New Zealand. That was produced by um, by the drummer, actually, Steve. Okay. Uh, I, I played on the tour before I came back to New Zealand to do a tour with Midge. And I I met Midge a long time ago with Roger Fox. So we sort of knew each other. And um, we did the tour. And then uh, toward the end, Midge said, well, look, I'm making a record this year. Do you want to come and play some, some drums on it? I'm going to get Stevie Ray Vaughan over to play as well. And I went, yeah, kidding me, man? Yeah, man, give me a call. Yeah. And um, and I think from memory there was another producer that was going to be sort of in that in that spot, but Steve got it. And Steve Steve Garden is pound for pound one of the one of the greater drummers and producers to come out of New Zealand. He's a fantastic, fantastic drummer, as you can hear on the recording. He's yeah. so great, mm-hmm. and he's a really good producer. Mm-hmm. He really understands how the, the layering thing goes. He's a good engineer. Um, he's he's a, you know one of the the sort of jack of all trades, but he, he, he really understands the whole lot. And um, they started to record, and Steve, of course, was playing drums. And uh, someone said, oh, I think we should get Kerry to play a couple of tracks. It was a bit silly. And I, I, I got the call, and I flew over, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, unfortunately, wasn't here. He actually died while I, while I was here oh, to do gosh. it. I remember, I remember getting the call. Well, I was, I was staying at a friend's place, and the phone rang, and it was – them to say that Stevie Ray had had gone down on that plane, oh, yeah. and um, Fuck. 
anyway, yeah. So that was yeah, it was a, that was a weird thing because Midge was saying, "I'm going to get Stevie Ray play it. Be great to have you." And I'm going, "Jeez!" And then all of a sudden, he wasn't here anymore. It's really weird. Mm. But I came back and I played on three songs, and um, and really, to be honest with you, Stevie, I have no idea why I was brought back because the tracks that I heard that Steve played on were far superior to what I did. It was it was so. I just I remember walking into the room and they were on tape, of course, and they pressed press play, and I said, "What do you want me to do?" You know, I can't. You know, that's that's great. You know, but I, I played some some drums on it. It was it was a good time. It was nice. It was nice to play. Awesome. On the yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah. Um, now, what's the most rewarding project or band that, apart from the stuff that you've you've written and recorded yourself? What's the most rewarding project or band um, that you've been involved in? In a recording aspect, or, a, or like a live thing? Well, let's pick pick one of each. Pick one of each. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think recording wise. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking of, of, uh, about the whole um, aspect of it, like from the playing, the songs, the engineering, the people. The, um, I think I, I did a record for um, Casey Chambers mm-hmm. back in 2000 and I can't remember, 2006 or five around that time. And I was I was excited about that. And uh, a few of my colleagues, it's a, they sort of poo-pooed her. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't agree with them. I was something about Casey that I was sort of intrigued with. I know the the voice can sometimes, um, you know, um, be a bit sort of penetrating, but I, I saw I saw a bit sort of more than that. Well, I heard a bit more than that, I should say. And so when I got the call to do it, I was excited. And the band was the band was an A class band, and I learned so much on that project that um, I took away a lot. And so that was probably one of the most um, rewarding. You know, not only the, the money was great. The conditions were great. The music was great. The studio was great. Uh, the, the she was great. Uh, it was there, was well, there wasn't one grizzle throughout that whole sort of nine or ten day uh, experience. And it wasn't it wasn't like the like you sort of rock in and, and you chart and you go. It was workshopping the songs up like in the old days. Right. You know, we did two songs a day. Right. Sometimes we get three in the can, but generally it was two songs a day. So you you know you worked them up and and. The band was. I have to mention the band because that that was really the probably the 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 epitome of you know that whole week or nine or ten days. Uh, it was a guy called Mike Punch on guitars, who's pound for pound one of the greatest guitar players that I've ever worked with in in Australia. Mm. Um, Jeff McCormack, who played uh, bass and um, and engineered. Rod McCormack, his brother, who's a great producer as well, who played all the acoustic guitars and twelve strings and. Uh, mandolins and banjos and all those wonderful instruments. And uh, a guy from America came out called Stuart Smith, and he'd just joined the Eagles. He'd taken Don Felder's place, right. and he was working in also in Don Henley's band at the time as well. So, and we were staying in this little hotel up the road, and um, I we just I drive him back, you know, and we'd we'd just go to the restaurant and have something to eat and a drink, and I'd just ask him questions because he this guy had worked with Rodney Crowell and Joni Mitchell. And um, all these amazing, you know, he knew everybody, and I just mm. asked questions. It was just what, well, you know, it's one of those times when you think I'm walking away from this with a whole bunch of sort of knowledge that I, I, I would never have got if I hadn't taken, you know, or said, been asked to do that project. Yeah, that's it was awesome. great. That's fantastic. Okay, now what about live? I think it's probably going to have to be that Tina Arena experience at the Olympia Theatre playing mm. to the French. 
um, it's a different it's a different culture over there. So when you play to they they, they of course the, the Parisians are, are known for their for their sort of abruptness and rudeness. But yeah, when you're an artist, if you're if you're a tourist, it's slightly different. But if you're an artist, they love you. And um, they sang all the words. They knew all the words in English, or even they, they they say that they never speak English. So I just the the feeling of being in Paris, playing um, playing with Tina and and that band. It was a really good band. Uh, everyone got along. It was it was a su- super experience. So, so I'd probably say that for sure. Great. Now who I'll was probably, I'll probably forgotten. I've probably forgotten something, and I'll probably call you back in about an hour and say, "No, no, no, it was actually <laughs> no, no, no." That's all good. So, who was in that band? That band was Paul. Paul Gray was was playing keyboards and, and singing. Um, Nick Sinclair was on bass. Um, Chris Gonzalez on guitar, and that's where I really heard Chris. Mm-hmm. That's where I really started to fall in love with his playing and uh, his groove, and and him. I just love that guy. He's such a terrific guy. Um, and there were two background vocals. One was a, a girl called uh, Diane Rubas, I think it was. Diane, Diane Rubas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she, she was sing- She was back then doing backgrounds. And uh, another girl called um, Chrissy Thomas. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were great together. And so Paul was singing as well. And uh, and it was a really good um, – and we were playing to a lot of um, tracks and things because it was we were promoting a record of hers at the time, I can't remember what the name of the record was, but um, and so there was lots of you know laptop stuff going on as well. But mm-hmm. just everyone got along. I don't know. It was a good, it was a good feeling band. Everyone just had a great time. You know? And when you're in Paris and you're playing in front of like an audience at the Olympia Theatre, which is famous for you know Edith Piaf and 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 Steely Dan has played there and and yep. Toto's played. I remember so I sat down at the acoustic piano one day when I when I first walked in. And there was a grand piano sitting there and I walked straight over to it and I lifted up the I think I was probably rude I probably shouldn't have done this and I looked at the piano and I said to myself I looked up in the air and I looked at and I said to myself David Page and Donald Fagan's probably played this piano yeah, yeah. and I sat down and started playing the piano because I was thinking this is sort of like piano royalty and I'm I get to be able to sort of touch it as well that's probably a bit silly but no, no not at all not at all um now, what what do you prefer, um, recording or playing live? Do you have a preference? Yeah, I probably prefer being in the studio. I, I, the pace is better for me, but um, especially now. But the um, but playing live is um, it, there's something about it because you can't. Um, it's it's different every night, and we're, and you know. But the the thing I didn't like about live is is once it's done gone um and you all you have is your memory of it and and then but but that's i guess what that's what live's all about mm-hmm. i guess but to be in the studio you can actually record things put things down and you can archive it and then you can reflect on it and you can still play it mm-hmm. but um so that, you know it's probably my little sort of how i sort of think of it you know but you know when you're playing in front of a great audience and you're playing great music there, there is nothing better i guess you know mm. okay so i've got something else that, that one of your other friends is written down here. You know Fab? Mm. Yep, okay. So yeah. this is Fab. I've heard that KB was the fastest drummer to pack down and get out of there at the end of a gig. <laughs> yeah, he's probably right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really? Yeah. And, and yeah. of course, you're, no, his, would... you're his favourite groove, uh, groove drummer, he says. What was that? What was the you're his favourite groove drummer. Oh, wow. Fab. What a... 
what a terrific guy. It's yeah, very nice of him. I, I guess you'd pay him that 50 bucks for saying something like that about <laughs> me. It's very nice of him. Um, yeah, I was sort of known for, for getting out of there pretty quick. I was, I was concerned because there were guys that I used to work with, like, um, I won't mention their names actually, sure. but they would start pack, packing up sort of three or four songs before the end of the gig. So I, 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 I was determined that I wasn't going to start sort of looking at crash symbols and taking symbols off, <laughs> which I never did. I, ne- I never did anything like that. But if I could, if I could get out of there as quickly as I could, I, I would, you know. And, and it was generally not, not for any other reason than I might have been there since four o'clock and played from seven to eleven, and then by the time I'm finished, I just want to get out of there, you know. And yep. it's nothing to do with the people, the nice people, and all that. But you just had enough, I think, you know. It's, you know. If you can, you can pack up and get out of there. I was, yeah, I was pretty good at it. Yeah. Now you just <laughs> you just mentioned taking off your crash symbols. Now there's another comment here from another friend, Mr. Dave Goodman. Dave. Yep. Yeah. So he said, <laughs> first time I saw KB play was in 1995. He said I was knocked out by the way he coloured and punctuated the music using the four crash symbols. He had set up through the night. I hadn't yet heard anybody else do it in quite the same way. He goes, I was 18 and I excitedly ran up to him at the end of the night and blurted out something like, man, it sounds like you can hear exactly the perfect moment to put those crashes and exactly uh, which of the four would be perfect for that exact moment. How do you do that? And apparently you replied, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, classic! No, that's that, that's not like me to say something like that. Uh, sorry, <laughs> so, no, no, no. You're probably right. Um, so he wants to know yeah, your take um, on that. What's your take I, I'm on that? Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. Uh, I I didn't mean to. Um, Dave's very intellectual. Oh, oh, he's he's very um on that sort of level. And yeah. I know he, he's going to hear this anyway. So, yes. Um, Dave's um the way Dave plays and the way Dave uh operates is um exactly how he what what that that's the line of questioning that he would. Yep. come up to anybody and not just, just me and so I, I apologize Dave I really should have taken the time to say well I heard a D7 sharp 9 so I thought I'd hit the 19 inch crash <laughs> at that time I probably should have been a little bit more um, forgiving or, or you know nice about it so <laughs> but um, I, I yeah I, I don't I never even I never ever thought like that I was probably playing them too loud too at the time you know and hitting too many yeah um, so yeah. He was probably being nice, you know, where he's, he might have actually wanted to come up and say, man, can you lose a couple of those crash symbols, please? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> maybe, he, maybe he's thinking, yeah, man, you're overplaying. <laughs> maybe if I say something like this, you'll you'll come back next week and you'll, you'll only have a crash and a ride. Maybe. <laughs> no, right. not at all. No, we love you, Dave. Um, Great drummer, too, by oh, the way. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, he's um, right. he's been on the podcast a couple of times. He was... Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, he. I um, listen. Yeah, he he. I can't remember what episode he was, but he you know he did a solo episode, and he was also part of the the drummers roundtable that we did. Yeah. Great. I should listen to those. I haven't done that yet. I no, will. That's for cool. Sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Leon Gear. Leon. Uh, I first met Leon back in 1988 at the basement, and I went down to see um. I was 19, I was pretty young, and I, I was going out every night to see music. I just wanted to see music. What am I saying? Hear music. I wanted to to, to to get amongst it. I just wanted to, you know, 
um, soak in as much as I could. I was a bit of a sponge back then. I still am, actually. And I went down to the basement. I was, um, I think Tommy had played the month before, and I'm pretty sure it was Mitch Farmer was playing drums, and it might have even been Victor. I can't remember. The following month um, was uh, Tommy Emmanuel Band with uh, Leon Gare and David Jones. Mm -hmm. And I went down, it was month, about this old days. So they used to have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So they used to play four nights. And then Friday, Saturday, have a couple of bands a night and Sunday, something else. So I went down on a Monday and I, I just went there every night. I, I actually went every single night. I paid 20 bucks or whatever it was, 15 bucks. And uh, I'd never seen, or I'm slightly off Leon for a second, I'd never seen or heard a drummer like David Jones in my life. I just never, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it because it, he, he, he didn't play like a studio musician. He didn't play like anything I'd ever heard. It was just mind-blowing. But Leon was playing bass, and I remember I got the – I saw the uh, the program, and it said Leon Gare, and I went, fuck, man, that's the guy that played on Brother to Brother. That's Gino <laughs> Manelli. Yeah. And I went down there, and I, I saw Leon Gare, and I thought, you know, you have this sort of – free image of who those sort of people are and what they look like. <laughs> he looks nothing like I thought Leon was going to be this sort of, I don't know what, maybe this funky guy and, and he was this guy with sort of long hair and, and a beard and and he played really lightly. He had, he had the, the most sort of um, unique touch. It was so soft and I, I thought he was going to be this sort of bombastic guy and it was the total opposite. And um, so that was the first time I, I saw him, and I think I met him, but that would mean nothing really. It was probably just like, hi, nice to meet you, bye. Mm -hmm. And then when I first got back to Sydney, I got called to do a session at Song Zoo, and um, it was Jingle Studio. I'm not quite sure if it's still there anymore. But, and Leon was on that session, and that was the first time I got to play with him. And uh, I was nervous because, you know, I was, yeah, I, I'm always been very respectful to my peers and or oh, mentors is probably the better word. And and Leon is, and it's still he still is. He was then, he still is now. He's one of my heroes in some ways. You know? I, and um, I got to work with him and then I worked with him more and more and more. And him and I did a lot of stuff down there at that, at that, doing some jingles and we did lots of projects together over the years. And I treasured, I just knew if, if I could see in the book who was playing, if it was Peter Northgate on guitar or Rex, and Leon Gare and Bill Risby, I knew we were going to have a great day. I just knew we were going to get some music done because, you know, those guys are so... And Leon, he has the focus that I, I think that he would probably have got from working in Los Angeles studios um, back then because there was... Um, it was... Uh, the time is money uh, and um, and the level of musicianship and um, and, and and the technology around at the time was was, was high. And so you, you you had to be pretty good, you know. So um, I I could see that in him, and that that um, and he was one of the first guys that I um, I I watched who monitored with cans on, and oh, wow. um, as in headphones. Mm. And I would I, I asked him one day we're we're at Song Zoo. I remember I was just walked up to him and I said, "Why do you monitor with cans on? Because no one else does." He said, "Because the speakers are too far away, and I want to be locked right in there with your bass drum." And I thought, oh, that's nice. I just like hearing that because he was, that's how focused he was. Yeah, you know, yeah, he yeah. wanted to know that because we're on tape, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to have to, uh, well, you can't, you know, sort of go through and yeah. <laughs> line, mind the bass drum and the, and the, and the bass up, you know, you, you can't do that, you know. So 
that's the sort of attention to detail that I, I loved about working with, you know, with Leon. He's such a great musician. I, I really, you know, and he's a wonderful guy. He's got a super wit and, um, uh, it's he it was always such a darling to be around. I just loved loved him. Yeah. Um now, yeah, what I found really interesting when I spoke to him, just going back to the bass drum thing, is how he would adapt the way that he plays based on the actual sound of the bass drum. Yep. Like, you know, he would change would he play his you know, his hand a little bit down, a little bit further, or depending on the sound yeah. of the bass drum, or you know, if he came to came to a gig and, uh, sorry, if he came to do a session, but the drums were going to get get done in a couple of weeks, he'd be like, oh, you know. So then he'd just play in <laughs> yeah, the middle. Yeah. He'd just play in the middle because if it was like a yeah. whooshy sort of bass drum, he'd, or if it's something nice and tight, then he'd play a little bit, little bit further up. You know, I thought that was fascinating. I never heard that's the, that's never the heard attention that. to detail yeah, that, exactly, that I. Yeah. I that knocked me out. And he, he would say to me, uh, well, there was one project that we were doing back in the late 90s and um, I was producing a record for, for somebody and I, the only way we could do it was if I uh, I played drums uh, first and then he came in to play bass afterwards. And I, I would, by that time, I really sort of, I would sort of honed what I really wanted to play on the drums so that when I knew that he came in and I'd write a nice little chart out for him, he could sort of manipulate a few things and write a few things in whatever. But he would always say to me, you should. We should be tracking together, Kerry, because we track really well together. And yeah. and you know, he said, but which, and then he did the same thing. He would change the, the placement of his fingers on the fingerboard um, because of you know he would he might have played it differently if it, it was actually in the same room at me at the same time. Yeah. You know, so yeah. and I love that. That's that's a great thing. And he would and he had always had lots of bases, and he would always share with you information about um, the reasons why he would use a, a certain base on something. And you know, he's, yeah. you know, he's such a super guy. And I. I listened to that interview um, that you did with him, which is fantastic. Yep. And um, I learned so much from that interview just yep. by what he talks about. You know, he's an, he's an amazing fellow. He really is. Yeah. I learned a lot about actually interviewing by talking to Leon because he was, <laughs> <laughs> he was, and this is all, this is fan, this is great because most of the people that I've talked to, well, everybody up to that point, um, I would ask them a question and then the answer would go on for a fair bit. Whereas Leon might just, he might have answered the question with just a couple of words. Yeah. Like, yes, or no, no. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, I needed you to go on for a couple of minutes because now I have to, yeah. I have to work harder, you know? So, he, you know, he's, he's made, he's made me a better person. You know, just, yeah, 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 no, yeah. yeah. He's, he's the one, he's the sort of the king of um, one word answers. Yeah, yeah. This is so cool. <laughs> um, now we did a, we did a bass players round table which was the last two oh, yeah. two episodes. And again, his name come well, we tried to get him here. Um, but he was away on tour, so but his name came up quite often as the guy yeah. that because on the on the round table was um Victor, Mark Costa, Darwin Martinez, um, Christian Attard, Bobby Poulton and, and Adam Ventura. Now okay. a couple of times a few of those a few of those guys actually talked about times where they were troubled by something, so they'd go and see Leon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he would sort of mentor them through these particular things, yeah. you know? Um, the, thing, the thing I liked about, uh, well, that, that it drew me to, to Leon was not only his playing, because his playing is just stupendous, it really is, mm. um, and his attention to detail, as we've talked about, but um, everything he says is so in such a non-threatening way, and yeah. you can ask him, 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure he must get sick of me. Well, you know, especially when we were working together, because I just kept asking him questions. If you go, oh, here comes Kerry again. He's going to ask <laughs> me about a whole bunch. Of it. But but I, he was always very giving with his with his information, you know. And I wanted to know how, who he played drums, uh, you know, bass with on on sessions, and and what it was like playing with them, and uh, and you know, uh, were you tracking in the same room? And he was always, you know, very giving. So he's you know, that's the sort of character that he is. You know, when I was in hospital. Um, uh, Leon came up to see me, and um, uh, I was pretty sick at the time. I was only been in there for about two or three weeks, so I was I was pretty under the weather. And um, but he came up and he 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 pulled up a seat and we sat there and uh, we sat there and we we chatted about music. And I asked him a whole bunch of questions again about LA and working with uh, Jake Raiden and and uh, uh, Brick Rotter and you know he was just filling me with stories, you know. And it was that was a really good time because I wanted to hear this stuff, you know, and. Um, I was pretty sick, like I said. So, and um, I was in rural North Shore. There were four patients in the room, and I had all the curtains closed because I um, I was bed rest. So, you know, if anyone that knows what bed rest is, it means you can't go to the toilet, you can't get up. So, it's pretty intimidating. And um, my my system, my bowels had sort of everything had frozen, and I hadn't been to the toilet in like it must have been four weeks. I think that's when they start to freak out. It was a new nurse on. And so you've got to picture this. I'm lying there. <laughs> Leon's, Leon's talking to me about Jake Graydon. He's talking about some session that he was on in 1977 or something, and and it was Ralph Humphrey playing drums. And I'm I'm lost in this amazing conversation about you know with this guy who's my friend. <laughs> and then the curtains just go like that, and it was a new nurse, and she said, "Hello, have your bowels moved?" <laughs> <laughs> and I look at her and I look straight over at Leon and Leon has this cheeky smile, that same cheeky smile that I've seen him pull so many times. And I said, can we talk about this later, please? And she said, oh, all right, I'll come back after your friend's gone. And <laughs> the curtains were closed. Anyway, so we, we chat for a little bit longer. Leon goes. And we were talking about um, there's a because there's a photo on 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 Facebook or on, on on social media, but I think you guys talked about with him sitting on his stool when he was playing the bass with his pedals yeah, on on yeah. in, on Gino's session. Yep. And he still got that seat. He still got that stool. Okay. Right. And what you told me then, and I still got that stool, and I said, "Wow, it's amazing." You know, we so we chatted a bit more. He'd gone. He sent me back this picture of me. <laughs> Of him you know, on that stool, he said, "Maybe you should do the same when you're playing drums. You should have one of these stools." But instead, he spelled it S T U H L E stool. Only only Leon could come up with something like that. You know, he he turned an awkward situation yeah, into yeah, a yeah. into a joke. You know, and and I've never forgotten that. I just I just broke up. I was so I was sore. I was, you know, I had a, I had a brain hemorrhage. I was on, I had like clots, blood clots on my lungs. I was so sick. And when he put that, and I looked at my laptop, I just literally broke down in, in tears of laughter because <laughs> that's Leon. That's that's typical Leon. Yeah. Now let me have a look at a couple of other things your friends have said here. Um, okay, so Victor Rounds, he said, ask Kerry to digress on an expression we used, whatever. Sometimes we used to mime it on stage. <laughs> um, I actually, I can't remember. I actually don't know what he quite means, but um, 
but um, we we did say uh, whatever a lot. Uh, um, and uh, I've got to be careful how I uh, how I say this because um, <clears throat> I think I know what he's talking about. But yeah. Marsha used to coin the phrase, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." <laughs> and so okay. Leon, um, Leon, what am I saying? Victor and I would sort of look at each other and and laugh, you know. And we'd do it on stage, you know. So when Marsha would sing something. Or, you know, I hope this doesn't go to where Marsha hears this, but if something would happen, and he, Victor would just turn around and look at me, and we'd both look at each other and go, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, it was, but, but, but it's funny, you know, um, I haven't seen Victor for a long time, and I, I, I and um, I hope I get to see him again one day, because I, I, I spent a lot of time with Victor working on the road, and, um, and we, you know, and, and in the studio too, and he's, he's such a, a great guy, and we had, um, you find those little quirky things, or those little things that get you through, if you're on the road for two weeks, you know, yep. if you don't have the odd whatevers, yep. man, you know, you start, you know, you start, you know, wanting to kill people because it can can get that way, you know. So we'd find that there was one other one. If you if you if you if you um, interview Leon, I'm uh, sorry, I keep saying Leon Victor. Yeah, uh, we had a little thing. I had a trolley, and um, I used to be able to take literally all my gear on this trolley except for my symbols. I think it was, and he called it. Um, oh, I can't even say it. So you ask him next time, and he'll he'll okay. tell you what the name of it is. Yeah. Okay, ask him about the trolley. Yeah. Um, now, Tony has a party. Um, he said, "Incredible musician, incredible time, great friend." And when Tony had a bit of bad luck, um, you went out of your way and you organised a benefit concert or benefit night for him. Um, yeah. So he thanks you for that. But he wants you to explain. The drive back to the hotel after a gig in Papua New Guinea. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, I have to say, uh, I'm, I, I'm not a one-word answer guy. I need to say the same thing back to Tony. He's one, such a wonderful musician, um, and I've learned so much about uh, 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 contemporary percussion because of working with him. He's, he really is. He has incredible time as well on all my records and anything that he's played in the studio that I've seen, whether I'm working as, uh, as myself or on anything else, he's a one take wonder. Yeah, he right. really just plays one take. It's, it's quite amazing. He's right. really such a, an incredible musician. But what he's talking about was, <laughs> um, we were playing in Papua Guinea with Marsha and, um, when we got into the Tarago's or the buses, big buses, um, we got told that we had to keep down because there was, um, rascals, they call them over there, and so basically, uh, guys with guns, and they can they can just randomly shoot the car. So we had to stay down <laughs> in order to not get shot. Oh. Yeah, it was pretty fucking heavy, man. And 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 I didn't know quite what to do because the guys came on and said, "Rascals um, are around, keep down." And so the the cars weaved all their way back because then the, the moving moving target. Yeah, right. Yeah, they could. Yeah. Oh man! And I, I called my partner at the time. My, I think we were married, and I said, "I think we're going to be all right." And then, I, of course, I realised, why am I calling her? And she's freaking out on the phone. And I'm going, "No, no, no! Don't worry about it, darling. It'll be fine." These guys saying, "Get off the fucking phone!" And I'm trying to get off the phone. And oh. It was a bit, it was a bit freaky. It was thinking, I was thinking, well, this might be it, but you know, it, it wasn't, <laughs> of course. But it was a, it was pretty heavy, you know, because you don't. We certainly didn't see that coming, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was a drive too. It was like a 45, 50 minute drive. So there was a lot of time there going, fuck, I hope we're going to be all right, you know. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was good fun. It was that was a good good couple of gigs. Or, or I think it was a gig. We were there for about three days. It was fun. Yeah, that's cool. Now, um, Chris Camzellis, um, he said that you when when you were recording your stuff, you didn't like the other musicians to hear the click track. So, you know, to, to sort of get with the song, you would you know play the drums. You'd record the drums, obviously, to click or whatever, and then they would play along to your tracks. Um, he was saying when when you were recording your first album, himself and Bill Risby were in the control room, and they compared your drums to the click track. They got the <laughs> click track turned up, and he said yeah. that you, you were just like spot on, but human at the same time, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Uh, and the other thing was when you're recording your second album. Now apparently you hadn't played drums because this was sort of after your accident, and yeah. you came in and you just nailed the tracks. Just I, well, I don't know whether I nailed them, but but, but that's nice of him to say so. Um, um, I can't really play hard anymore because um, the uh, or, or with that sort of vigor because of um, my injuries, I guess. And so I was. Um, I told everybody. I'm pretty sure that, I, that I'm just going to be playing fairly sort of low key on this. It's going to be, you know, the. Um, it's not going to be like the, the previous album. And so we all fell into a groove pretty quick, mm-hmm. and it was it was okay. Um, there was a couple of things I struggled with because I wasn't really playing that much. But yep. but it's that's, there again. When you got great guys around you, it, it was pretty comfortable. And I had Leon and 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 Chris and and Bill, and it was you know it was pretty it was nice. It was cozy, so I could sort of you know, take my time on things. It was, was good. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome, man. Now, this is just a random question. I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking before. Now, answer me this. Now, what do you think with this interview that I should have asked you? How's that for a question? What were you, what were um, you thinking I may have asked you about today? I don't know. And that's I, cool. when you came on and you said, um, the line of questioning isn't going to be the same as um, the inside music cast. Uh, that 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 pleased me because there's no point in going over if they if someone can sort of turn back to that one, and have a listen as well. Um, I don't know. No, I think we've we've covered sort of some nice things. You know. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you know. I don't. Uh, I think. If, you know. Yeah, I think we've covered everything. You know, it's, it's, I think pretty much people like um, to talk about their own music. I guess is. Is the thing, and we've 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 talked about that. So, yep. and so, you know, we've talked about some nice gigs and things. Like, yeah, it's been, it was great. You know, it's nice. Awesome. Yeah, man, it's been yeah, it's actually been a quite a while coming this one because yeah, we kind of we had it, and then you moved, and then you were sick, and then then I was sick, and then you couldn't get internet. Now, well, you're still sick. Now so, I'm yeah. sick. But you know what I can do here though? I, like I don't, you wouldn't have known, but. Every time, sometimes when I went to do a cough, I just muted my track. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, I you saw? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You could see that's me good. Going. No, it's good. I, yeah, I thought, yeah. well, I'm not going to, I won't, I won't sort of um, make it awkward. I'll just carry on. Yeah, know? no, good idea. <laughs> professional, true professional. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Kerry Buchanan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, like, yeah, like I said, it's, um, it's really nice to have met you. Um, yeah. Known about too, you man. for a long time. Um, yeah, man. I hope we can do this again sometime. And, and uh, yeah, for sure. Looking forward to your book, and yeah, would love to hear some your new music down the track when that comes. For sure. Yeah, for sure. 
And please, uh, all those people that ask those questions, uh, Chris and uh, Victor and Tony uh, and uh, whoever else, uh, uh, Dave. Dave, Fab, give them, Mark, give them, yep. And, fa- and Fab, yep. Fab too. Yep. Um, tell, tell, tell Fab to, to ease up on the on the things with his new lady. I mean, Jesus. Shithouse. Hey, what is it? Shithouse. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Classic, yeah. Um, and so, but give my love to all those guys because, um, and in, anyone else, in, in fact, because I haven't seen a lot of those those chats for a while, and you know that they're, they're a big part of my life, and um, and I love them dearly. So give them give them my best for sure. Sweet as I'll do that. All right, Kerry man, look after yourself, and um, okay, yeah, we'll catch you soon. Good on you, bro. All right, cheers, Kerry. Yeah, man. Change my life, clothes, job, and address 
Just a thing.